0: This morning I am just overwhelmed by God's goodness to me, uh, and um, I just want to thank you for the grace of pastoring this church. Um, I know some of you are new and you say, well, I really didn't have a choice, but um, I, I feel as if Your presence here and and being here and being among us, is it is an honor. And I don't take it lightly, but I am so thankful to God for His mercy and His grace. And to be able to pastor here is, next to being a husband and a father, the honor of my life. So thank you for that. I don't take it lightly. If your spouse has already nudged you with their elbow during the reading of the Word. You know that you're in for a good day. We were supposed to do this text last week. Some of you thought because you weren't here, you were going to get out of it. Not the case. You're in this. I'm in this. And I want to remind us as we start this morning that there is a context to what Peter is teaching and we've been looking at that context for a few weeks, and it really goes back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. It's kind of a beginning part of this passage of Scripture that we are still... or this beginning uh, section of thought that Peter is still going through. And in verse 13, chapter 2, he says to the church, "...be subject..." for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, or, more literally, to every institution that has been ordained for people. And so we talked about this, that the general command is that in your life, whatever institution that has been ordained for you, that you are a part of, you should be subject to those who are in leadership of that organization. So whether that is... A your job, whether that is at a church, whether that is in some volunteer organization that you spend time with, whether it is the gym that you go to and the rules that they have, we are to, for the Lord's sake, submit ourselves to every institution ordained for people. And the big picture that we've looked at for several weeks now is that believers submit themselves willingly as servants to others. And sometimes that means even submitting ourselves as a servant to people who don't have great character, who aren't godly. And the only exception to that is that we do not submit ourselves to them if they are asking us to violate God's moral law. We always submit ourselves first to God... And so if the institution we're a part of is asking us to do something that is ungodly, then we say, no, with respect. But if it is not an issue of sin, we submit ourselves to them as servants, and we do this out of submission to the words and the model of Jesus. We don't do this from a position of weakness, we do it from a position of strength. Because we will inherit the earth, and the people of God will judge angels. But we are called to lay our rights aside, just as Jesus did, to serve others. That's what we're called to. If that was the model of Christ, that's the model for us. And so that's what Peter has been teaching us about. Every institution, and he has given three specific examples of this. One, to governing authorities. Secondly, to those who are over you as a master. And now, the third example is marriage. In the institution of marriage. And this one is the only one of the three in which Peter gives instructions to both the one who is in authority or the lead, in this case the husband, but also instructions to the one who is called to be in submission, in this case the wife. In the other examples, it was just instructions to those who were to submit themselves. But in this case, it is to both. The one who should be in submission and the one who is submitted to. And I think this is telling. I think this shows us that Peter's aim in this particular instruction is pastoral. That he is giving pastoral instructions to both parties in the marriage, the husband and the wife. And I want to say to us at the very beginning... And I, tr- I trust that in general as a church, I don't think this is our method of how we approach scripture, but I, I do know potentially a temptation toward this in all of our hearts as well as the potential is there that this is how some of us do approach scripture. And that is that we would look at these instructions and that our first thought is how archaic, how old, how out of touch with reality and culture. And before we say that, I want to encourage us to think about both the context, but also the problem. There is a problem that Peter, in these pastoral instructions, is trying to correct. And unless we understand what that problem is we're not going to understand and be able to affirm the instructions that he is giving as he is inspired by God. So to begin with, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, a passage that I imagine you are familiar with, but these are kind of parallel instructions that Paul gives to marriages as well. So if you have a Bible this morning, if you would go to Ephesians 5. If you do not have a Bible today, If you don't have a copy of God's Word, if you're watching this replay later and you do not have a copy of God's Word, we would love to gift you a copy from our church. And so if you'll let me know that before you leave today and we will give you a copy of Scriptures that you can use to study. Let's go to Ephesians 5, and let's look at a few passages here. And when Paul gave instructions on marriage, and I know, again, many of us are familiar with these, but please avoid that idea of, wait, well, I've heard this a million times, and let us read it and hear with spiritual ears. May the Lord be with us as we do that. Beginning in verse 22, let's go through verse 26. Verse 26, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for... Now go down to verse 31. Let's look at verse 31 and 32. He's continuing here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let's pause for a moment and pray. Father, I ask you, that You would give us the ability to hear with spiritual ears this morning. Not to read what we want to into these passages, but rather to put our hearts before You to receive from these passages what You want us to hear. I ask this morning, God, for marriages in this church, for health and healing and restoration. I pray, God, for marriages... They're represented by people who may watch this later for that same health and healing and restoration. And I pray, God, even for those in this church who are single but who might one day enter into marriage, that these instructions would be meaningful to them in understanding your call and your purpose. Let us not speak to you today, God, but let us receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. In your notes, if you are a note-taker and have um, the outline, let's start here. The gospel was hidden in God's original design of marriage. That is what Paul is teaching us here, that the gospel was hidden in God's original design of marriage. In verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, and the original declaration over marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That was a pre-fall declaration. And the reason I'm stressing that to you is because these instructions, this declaration over marriage is not a result of sin. This was before sin. This was a pre-fall declaration. Therefore, a man shall leave his father. That didn't necessarily mean that he was going to leave the home property. Often in biblical times, people didn't do that. They moved to a portion of land that their family owned. But this leaving is not necessarily physical, but it is a spiritual leaving, a, a relational leaving. It means from this point on, this man will put his wife's welfare above every other person, even his own parents. The most important human relationship is the one between a husband and a wife. It is superior to every other human relationship on the earth. It is the one in which we are to separate from our family in order to be able to live with our spouse in the way that God has declared. And what Paul does in verse 32 is after he reiterates that original declaration, he then reveals to us something. And what he reveals to us is that there was a hidden meaning that God placed in marriage. At the very beginning of time, before sin had even been committed, God placed a hidden meaning within marriage that would be revealed at a later time. And in your notes, that meaning goes like this. That the husband's role was to mirror the tender service and sacrifice that Jesus would have as the head of His church that the husband's role would mirror the tender service and sacrifice that Jesus would have as the head of His church. We've said this many times before. The gospel was not plan B. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the earth. God had already planned to reveal Christ and the church before the fall. And he had designed marriage intentionally that one day people would be able to look at it and realize, oh, wait a minute. The husband is to live the way Christ lives toward his church in tender service and sacrifice. The head means the leading authority. The head of the church, Jesus is the leading authority of the church. The head of the marriage is the husband, the leading authority in the marriage. And notice, men, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her. Your love of your wife has the foremost goal of her sanctification, of her growing in godliness, of her becoming like Jesus. And growing in her faith. And the wife. The wife's role mirrors the trusting and respectful submission of the church toward Jesus. This is the second part of the mystery, as Paul calls it. The wife's role mirrors the trusting and respectful submission of the church toward Jesus, its leading authority. Verse 22, Paul said, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submission of a wife to her husband is directly connected to her submission to Jesus. my, My point in all of this, what I want you to understand, is that biblical instructions on marriage are not the product of some antiquated cultural influence of Paul's time. That's what people say. They read those instructions from Paul or from Peter, and they say, that was just cultural. That was in their day. This was done before human culture had even been invented. This was designed and purposed when there were two people on the earth, and God said, this is what marriage will be like. He modeled it after the coming union of Christ and His church. A model that is specifically to be lived out by believers. And what we need to know in marriage is that the primary purpose of us living out this model is not our own good, although this is for our own good. But the primary purpose in living out this model is a display of the gospel. Marriage displays the gospel like no other relationship on earth. But the reality is, even the most faithful of husbands struggle to lead well. Even the most faithful of wives struggle to submit well. Why is that? Here's the model. What's the problem? To understand that, we need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. So again, if you have a Bible, would you go there? Again, to passages that I know that you've heard of before. But I want to ask you to not just assume that you know all there is to know about these words and let God speak to us this morning. Let's go back all the way. Right after Genesis 2, 24, right after this relationship has been formed and this declaration over marriage has been made, immediately after that, in the text, we don't know how much time actually passed, but in the text, immediately after that, Genesis chapter 3, which begins with, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And we see the temptation of mankind by the enemy of God. Look at verse 6 and verse 7. We know what happens is that God had given instructions to not eat of a certain tree. In the garden, you can eat of any tree that you want. Man and woman, enjoy yourself. These... This tree is set aside for me. It is holy. And that is where the temptation came in. And the serpent tempted Eve and Adam to partake in this. In verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And then go to verse 16. What transpires next is after hiding from God, God comes and He finds man, and He begins to lay out the consequences of what they have done. And I want you to see the second part of verse 16. To the woman he said, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so here's what we see in Genesis 3. Back in your outline. Sin marred the marriage relationship and corrupted its nature. Sin marred the marriage relationship and corrupted its nature. The Holy Declaration of Genesis 2.24 Now comes in the fall, the fall of man, and sin mars the marriage relationship. That's the first thing we see. What do Adam and Eve do? They immediately hide from each other. Before, there was no issue. They totally knew one another and had no shame in that. But immediately upon sinning, they had shame even toward each other. There was no one else around at this point they're hiding from. They put the fig leaves on to hide from one another. We immediately see something in their relationship has changed. Shame and sin has created a distortion in the relationship that wasn't there prior to the fall. They no longer feel completely safe with one another. They no longer completely trust one another. But there is also from verse 16, a fundamental change in the very nature of the marriage. It's not just Adam and Eve and their marriage that has now been disrupted, but God says, as a consequence, the very nature of your relationship has changed. How, how did that change, or what was that change? In your outline, number one, we'll start with the husband. The husband, who had failed to nurture and lead, is now tempted to dominate. The husband who had failed to nurture and lead is now tempted to dominate. It is so important in verse 6 to see that Eve gave some to her husband who was with her. This is not a situation in which Satan found Eve and got her away from her husband and created this issue. He was with her. Which means that while Adam was supposed to guard and care for his wife, he did not. And the consequence of that, in verse 16, is he now shall rule over you. That word means to reign. It means to have dominion, to domineer. What God was saying is now because of this sin the husband who is supposed to guard and care will be tempted to rule you, to reign over you in a domineering, dominating type fashion. He will no longer easily just guard and care and lead you where you need to go, but rather he will be tempted to use his strength and his ability to dominate in order to get what he wants in the marriage. And the wife, the wife who had failed to wait and honor, is now tempted to control. The wife who had failed to wait and honor is now tempted to control. I use that language because we don't know whether Eve simply usurped Adam's authority, stepped in front of him, and said, I got this. Or whether Adam had just shrunk back and was failing to lead and so Eve was just left there kind of on her own in her husband's presence. We don't know. What we do know is she didn't look to him. She didn't look to him to lead. She didn't, we're not told of anything where she looked to him to say, is this a good idea? Should we do this? Are you going to guard me? What did God say? And now, God says, from this point on, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. That language, and depending on what translation you have, it's, it's a little odd. But if you, if you want to look over maybe a page in your Bible to Genesis 4-7, there's one other place that this exact phrase is seen. Genesis 4-7, where God is talking to Cain, and he says, if you don't do If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and then here it is. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Same phrase. In that case, it's a positive command. Sin wants to control you. Its desire is contrary to you, but you, Cain, need to master sin. But when you apply that to marriage, it's a very distorted thing. The husband will want to master his wife. But the wife will want to control her husband. She will desire somehow to oppose his leadership and seek his role. Sin corrupted the very nature of marriage. From this point on. It went from God's design, Genesis 2.24 that Paul said was a hidden mystery to be revealed later, that marriage was supposed to be built on Christ and the church, and it has went from that, loving, sacrificial husband, respectful, trusting, submissive wife, to an ongoing struggle for power. And we see this in every marriage, every one. If you are married in this room, you have dealt with this in some way. If you are to one day be married, you will deal with this in some way. It may manifest itself differently in different ways in different marriages based on different personalities. Some of us, some of our marriages, we've learned how to deal with this in gospel ways. And so it's not as much of a problem for us as it once was. And praise God for that. But in every marriage, there is a temptation of a struggle for power. And often, often, it will come from a husband who wants to take authority by dominating, even at times bullying his wife with his strength. Whether that is physically or emotionally or mentally. And a wife who in some way tries to exert control, often in more subtle ways. Typically, and this is, I say typically because it will not meet every single situation and circumstance, but typically, if a husband is dominating his wife, that is very visible. It may be hidden to people outside of the marriage and the family, but it is typically very visible. Sometimes trying to control your husband is not as visible. It's more subtle. But I think what it means is that you know what to do and how to act to get the outcome you want. And you do that in order to control, in order to grab authority. And before you trip over the language that I'm using, understand this is not about how bad people are. This is about how deadly sin is. This is what sin has done. It is why we are so desperately in need for Jesus. It is why we are so desperately in need of the gospel. It is why in every one of our marriages, the gospel must be central. And it is why in any of your marriages, any of you who decide one day you want to be married, the gospel must be central. Because this struggle for power will Take place. It will rear its head at inopportune times on Christmas Day and you will see some struggle for power. So this is the original design and here's the problem, and now we get to Peter's pastoral corrections. This is the context by which Peter is now trying to instruct husbands and wives to lead them away from this corruption toward what is best, toward what is good for them. I know we see this, we see these things, and we're just like, ah! Some of our hearts, is just, what is this? It's so counter to our way of thinking, to our culture. Yet Peter's saying, this is what is good for you. This is what is good for your marriage. But he is not just doing it because of that. He is doing it out of concern for the gospel. Do you remember Genesis chapter, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2, we read verse 13 a moment ago, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. But remember the verse right before that? Right before he started this series of instructions that we're going through today? Or that we've been going through the last couple of weeks, and he said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He is concerned with what is good for your marriage, but he is concerned about the gospel among the Gentiles. We think Satan wants to ruin our marriages because of us. And he laughs at that. He wants to ruin marriages because he doesn't want people to see the gospel that is supposed to be displayed in those marriages. That's what's at stake here. Your good, God's glory. So let's look at some of these instructions that Peter gives us. Let's start in verse 7. We'll start with the guys. Likewise, likewise tells us that as he's given these instructions, he's just given some to the wives, and he's saying now, likewise, husbands, same line of thinking here. And in your outline, actually, let's read the verse first. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now in your outline, to husbands, here's... The instruction, strive in the spirit for boldness to lead with a gentle temperament. Strive in the spirit for boldness to take the lead with a gentle temperament. We saw this in Ephesians 5. We see it here. You are the head of the family. Husbands in this room, future husbands, lead Your families. It has been the one constant I have seen in 18 or so years of pastoral ministry. A failure of husbands to lead their families. We are blessed at Agape with many, many good men. Who love their families and lead them well. And I think that is character of our church. We're not perfect in it but I do believe it's a character of our church. But I've seen so much strife over the years, many, many times in families whose husbands are just not leading. Lead. You're the head of your wife. You're the head of your family. I heard it said years ago very well. It is not a question of who the leader of the family is, it is a question of what kind of leader they are. One day, as a husband, you will stand before God and you will give an account for leading and pastoring your family. And the strength of your wife's personality is not an excuse. If your personality is more of shrinking back and your wife has a personality that's a little bit more domineering, it doesn't matter. You are to lead. But you are to do so with a gentle temperament. Sometimes our issue is not that we're not leading, it's that we're not leading in the right way, with the right attitude. Husbands, repent. Putting aside every hint of desire to not do the work of nurturing and guarding and caring. Here's the easy road. The easy role, the easy road is to domineer, dominate, and control with your strength. Lead with your strength. That is the easy road. The harder road is to do the work of nurturing and caring and guarding. But that's what we're called to do. Repent of where you've not done that work and repent where you have replaced it with a domineering attitude. And in Christ, set yourself to sacrifice to see that your wife is fulfilled and growing in godliness. That's the call. This is my great struggle as a husband. The great way in which I have failed my wife over time is not in leading It is in not leading with a gentle temperament. One of the, one of the most eye-opening moments of our marriage happened 10, 12 years ago, I guess, where we were in a discussion that had some emotion to it. Some people call those fights. But I will never forget her looking at me in this, not in prideful arrogance or berating, but just with this bewilderment and saying to me, I will never be able to out-argue you. Ever. And what I don't know if I fully realized then, but what God has revealed to me over time is that is how I would dominate my life. Not physically. She could probably take me if she wanted to. But as some of you know, I can talk and I can debate and I would dominate her by arguing her into the ground to where she had nothing that she could say because I wasn't listening. And God allowed that moment to be something significant for us. Now, you would have to ask her whether it's gotten tons better. I feel it has, but by God's grace, He allowed me to see that. Wives. Verse 1 and 2. Pastoral instructions to our wives. Wives. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So in your outline, here's the instructions to the wives. To wives, strive in the Spirit for the courage to honor your husband's role with a peaceful disposition. Strive in the Spirit for the courage to honor your husband's role with a peaceful disposition. I believe this means that you are to respect your husband and willingly place yourself under his leadership. And I'll say again, personality doesn't matter here. Even if he is not a strong leader, even if you are a stronger leader, you are to willingly place yourself under his leadership. So wives, repent. And put aside every desire to not do the work of praying and waiting and honoring. Because the temptation would be rather than pray and wait and honor your husband and wait for God to move and to change him and mold him, the temptation would be to just assume that role with some type of subtle control. Repent of that. Pray and wait and honor. I want you to notice a couple things in these passages. One, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. This is not a call for all women to be subject to all men. This is not a call that every woman is to submit to every man. You are to submit to your own husband. That's the call here. Secondly, I want you to notice where he says that you may win them over without a word by the conduct, by your conduct, when they see your respectful and pure behavior or conduct. Respectful and pure reminds us that you are to never follow your husband into sin. We have said this a couple of times, that you are to submit if you are not called to violate God's commands. Wives, you are to submit to your husband's leadership unless he is asking you to sin. And if he is, it is a respectful no, that you can't follow him there. And I feel the need to say, just for us to hear. These instructions are not a call to stay in a harmful and abusive relationship. They are not also instructions to immediately divorce out of a harmful and abusive relationship. These instructions are able to be done even apart from a situation that is harmful or abusive. And my exhortation would be to anyone who is in that situation, or if you know someone who is in that situation, that the first thing is to separate yourself from the harm. And then to seek out help prayerfully, hopefully, from a church leader, from an elder or pastor. And it is the church's responsibility to handle that well when it happens. But, in general, the picture is, willfully place yourself under your husband's leadership. I want you to notice something, guys, back in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. That's a fun phrase. Weaker vessel. What does Peter mean by that? He, he may mean, in general, physical weakness. He may mean, in general, that the husband would be physically stronger than the wife. But that is not always the case. I do also believe he could mean emotional strength. Husbands, your wives may have a much greater sensitivity to conflict and criticism than you do. Sometimes, guys, we could just say things to one another. We can be critical. We can apologize and move on. Sometimes for ladies, that sinks into their spirit. They assume that, take that in. They are a weaker vessel in some way, weaker to you in some way, and that is why you must not be harsh with your spouse. Colossians 3.19, that's actually the instruction. Colossians 3.18, wives submit to your husbands. Colossians 3.19, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Have a gentle temperament. I believe that if a husband interprets his headship to mean he has the avenue to be harsh and critical toward his wife is totally not following biblical commands or wisdom. I also believe that if a husband interprets interprets his headship to mean he makes every decision in the household and he doesn't respect his wife's insights or her gifts, I think that is a misapplication and ultimately it's unhealthy. And quite honestly, I think it's a foolish way to lead a family. In verse 7, when he says, live in an understanding way, husbands, he's saying live in knowledge. That's actually the literal word there. Live in knowledge, a knowledgeable way. I think what he is saying there, live in an understanding way, live in a knowledgeable way, is certainly you should live in a knowledge of God's Word and how to wisely apply that Word to your marriage. But I also think a knowledge of your wife's strengths of her goals, of her needs, of her frustrations, of her gifts, and then lead your family accordingly. Men, study the Word so you know how to lead wisely. And men, study your wives so you know what they need and how you can help them and lead them accordingly toward health and enrichment. And in the final analysis, the husband has headship. That's the big picture here. Which means that he has responsibility for leadership in the home and making decisions that impact the entire family. And the wife is to express an attitude of deference toward that role that he has that is reflected in her words and in her actions and in her attitudes. Just like we can lead but not lead well because we don't have a good attitude about it. We can submit, but not submit well because we don't have a good attitude. We we could say, I'm going to submit to what you're saying here, and I'm going to sit back and hope it all blows up so I can point it out to you. That is not the type of submission that we're called to, or that wives are called to. Words and actions and attitudes should reflect that we're prayerful, for our husbands, and that we're hoping that they lead well. And that they lead us well, they lead their wives well. Please keep in mind that God-given roles are about order and gospel, not value and importance. God-given roles are about order and gospel, not value and importance. Look again at verse 7. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Men and women, husbands and wives, are completely equal before God in spiritual privilege and in status and in the ability to make an eternal impact. We are all children of God. We are brothers and sisters in the faith in Christ. This is not about value and importance. For the husband, the issue of headship is not about having privilege. It's about having a grand responsibility. And for wives, the issue of submission is not about inferiority. It's about a beautiful reverence. And both the husband and the wife together, obeying the roles they've been given, pursue the glory of the gospel and the peace of their marriage through mutual, unselfish submission to God's design. Before we move into the life truth to end this, I I want to address verses 3 and 4, because I believe it needs addressing here. So let's go back and read those. Still speaking to wives, Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. To understand what is being said here, and it is critically important what is being said, but to understand, we need to make sure we understand what it's not saying. You cannot use this text and say this is a prohibition against braiding hair and wearing jewelry. Because... There's three things mentioned there. The braiding of hair, the wearing of jewelry, and the putting on of clothes. And Peter is no more prohibiting the braiding of hair and putting on of jewelry as he is the wearing clothing. That's not the picture. He is not saying, you can't do these things. What is he talking about? Do not let your adorning be external. Adorning refers to what you decorate. A decoration. You adorn a tree. At Christmas, maybe some of you do. You adorn your house with flowers, right? This is about what you decorate your life with. The question he is laying before us, and I think it's applicable to men, but he is addressing this to the wives, to women, is is your focus about how you decorate your life, about how you make yourself appealing and attractive to others, is it in an external focus? And if so, ask yourself the question, what am I trying to gain from this? Because likely, if your focus of your life is an external adorning, you are desiring attention for yourself. You're desiring people to see and notice you. But if your focus is an internal adorning of godliness and godly character, you want people to be attracted toward you or see you as appealing because of an inward beauty, then your goal is the glory of Jesus. Because you're able to say, This isn't about me. This is about what he's doing in me. This is not saying it is sinful to make yourself externally attractive for your husband. You get dressed up for a date night. There's nothing wrong with that. It can be very healthy. That wasn't in my notes. It just came out. This is, this is a warning. This is a warning. That you avoid the temptation to focus attention on yourself through external measures. I, the reason I'm taking t- a couple minutes to talk about this is because, listen, this is so, this is so prevalent in our culture where women are pressured to find and show their value and their esteem in the attention that is given to them by their external adorning. And men have participated in this. And dads grieve over this. Follow me for just a moment. This is not a Christian study I'm giving you. Secular psychologists and psychiatrists have said, the most dangerous social media platform for young women is Instagram. Why? Because it is completely built on posting filtered pictures of yourself to get likes. As a matter of fact, Instagram has recently, and just keep following me, Instagram has recently done an update, in the process of doing an update, where you can choose whether or not you hide the ability to see other people's likes on a picture. You can go in there and you can say, I don't want to see how many likes someone else's pictures are getting. And when the CEO of Facebook and Instagram was asked, why did you do that? And they said, it is because we recognize the unhealthy manner in which some people have used this, especially young ladies, into which they look for those who are getting the most likes and the most attention. And they they think, well, I need to be like that. I need to look like that. Peter is speaking from 2,000 years ago to say, external adorning and beauty is fleeting. Time will take it from you. But the inward beauty of a godly spirit will never be taken from you. And it will point to Jesus. So don't make this text say more than it actually does. But use it to lead your life. To not let the external adorning of yourself be what you use to make yourself appealing to others. Let's end here with this question. What if? What if God, what if my spouse doesn't do the things that they've been called to do? And here's this life truth that I want to give us. God has ordained His sanctifying power to flow through the gracious and obedient conduct of His people. God has ordained His sanctifying power to flow through the gracious and obedient conduct of His people. So look at what He told wives. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some don't obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives. There will always be a time where your spouse is not obeying God. And wives are told here that the answer is not try and take the role of the Holy Spirit. Not try to win them over with your constant words or questions or even preaching. But to primarily focus on you and how you are living before God and trusting Him. Wives, even if your husband is not a believer, which is, I think, what Peter's addressing here, you could win them to the gospel with pure conduct. This is not a prohibition against you ever sharing your feelings. I think that would be an unhealthy marriage. But it is saying that your focus should be your own obedience toward God. And let God use that obedience to win your husband over. Honoring him may actually lead him to want to be honorable. In verse 6, Peter said, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. It is frightening to place yourself in the submission of someone else. And as a wife, I imagine it is frightening to place yourself under the authority of your husband because of all the what-ifs, And here God is saying, don't be afraid. Sarah had to trust her husband a lot in uncertain times. He failed a lot and so did she. But she did good and she wasn't frightened because she trusted that God was faithful. You do the same. And husbands, while not specifically said here, honor your wives and treat them as valuable with or without their respect. Lead your families, even if they're not following you. Love them more, be gentle, be persistent. And look at this warning that you're given. In verse 7, the last part. If you do not live with your wife in an understanding way, if you do not show her honor as the weaker vessel, if you try to dominate her with your strength, God may stop listening to your prayers. He may not hear you when you pray. Because of how you're leading your wife. That's his discipline. So repent. I will tell you pastorally, I have never seen a marriage in trouble consisting of a man and a woman who were truly striving to obey God in these things. Yes, they would have difficulties here or there. But I mean really deep trouble. Every really deep situation I've ever been brought into Most of the time it was a situation where the marriage was suffering because one or more people had abdicated their responsibility and the other person was waiting on them to be faithful to what God said before they were faithful to what God said. So I want to make this gospel plea to you. Everything that we have talked about today is completely maligned and ridiculed by our culture. So here's my plea to you, a Joshua moment. Church, choose this day who you will serve. You can serve your flesh. You can serve the culture. You can serve the prevailing thoughts of how ridiculous this sounds. Or you can serve God. And you can trust that He knows what is best. Fight for the health of your marriage. I'll make this gospel plea to you. Fight for the health of your marriage with gospel applications. Apply the gospel to your marriage. Fight for the health of your marriage through consistent prayers. Pray for one another. Pray together. And fight for the health of your marriage in transparent community. I want to ask the prayer partners and worship team to come up. You guys can grab the lights. As they do, I want to remind us of a passage of Scripture as they're getting into place. That passage of Scripture is from 1 Corinthians 6. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says to Christians, Why are you suing each other and taking each other to secular courts? He says, one day you're going to judge angels. Why can you not figure out how to resolve disputes among yourself? And then he furthers those instructions by saying, before you take a brother or a sister in Christ to a secular court to sue them, just be wronged. It'd be better for you just to lose whatever the battle was than for you to malign the gospel by as Christians going before secular courts and suing one another, Christian to Christian. So I want to be bold in saying this, church. When I say, would you be in transparent community? What I have seen over time is that when marriages in the church get in trouble, they don't talk about it. They don't come before the church or come before pastors or come before leaders and say, we're really in trouble and we really need help. And by the time the church ever knows what's happening, or pastors ever know what's happening, they're already in the secular court letting them decide what's happening. Could we change that dynamic and be a church that is willing to say, marriage is a struggle. We need the grace of God and we need each other. Would we be a place that would be willing to not gossip about each other's spouses but to help each other to reach out to one another, pray for one another would we be willing to say we got struggles, we need help a transparent community we could be a beacon of light to other people in our community if we can get our house in order I believe God will allow us to have a ministry to families here Ministry to marriage is here. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm hoping for. This morning, we get ready to sing together, and then we're going to celebrate a baptism. There are people here who will pray for you. If you want to come and let your marriage be prayed for, if you want to come as a spouse and just ask to be prayed for, take advantage. Of it. They're not here representing perfect marriages. They're here as people who need grace, the same as all of us do. And if you have never come to know Jesus as your Savior, before you leave here today, or if you're watching this on replay, would you get in touch with me? I'd love to have a conversation about that with you this week. God, would you rescue us? Would you rescue our marriages? Would you strengthen them and give them health? Would you help us to be obedient and to trust you? And to choose this day to fight for our marriage with gospel application and prayers and transparent community. Give us the strength, God. Help us get our house in order and make us a beacon of light to this community and beyond. In Jesus' name.